Well, first Sunday of the month, we have been going through the Psalms, so if you would, would you please stand if you are able one more time as we read together Psalm 7. This is out of respect for the speaker who is God, not me, I'm just the reader. Amen? Amen. So let's now uh, listen intently together to God's inerrant word from Psalm 7. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, and over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Well, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief, and he gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks to the Lord, the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. A lot of uh, nieces, relatives are from the south in Alabama. We went to visit uh, one year. She has some cousins that live in a little town in Alabama called Scottsboro, Alabama. And uh, it's like a picture postcard of a southern town, and it, there's a town square with grass and big, you know, trees in the middle. It's not that big, you know, it's very, you know, maybe a couple hundred, you know, feet across, less than a football field, uh, and then around that central square of beautiful grass and trees are old buildings, like gas lamp era buildings built in the 1800s or earlier, beautiful architecture that surrounds that park. It's just like what you would expect when you think small southern town, what you would, you know, what you would think about seeing on the postcard. And uh, as we were walking through, he's giving us the tour of our cousin Drew, he's a football coach, started telling me, he's like, this is Scottsboro. Have you heard of Scottsboro? And I said, no, I haven't heard of Scottsboro. And he said, well, Scottsboro is the place where uh, of the Scottsboro Nine or the Scottsboro Boys and I had no idea what that was. I asked him to tell me and what, it, what it was. As he was telling me this, um, 
and I was really impressed with his openness about it, being, you know, a guy, a, a, a guy who's a younger guy who's grown up in Alabama. He wanted me to know this history. He wasn't trying to hide it. Uh, he was saying the Scottsboro, Scottsboro Boys were nine African-American teenagers who were wrongly accused of assaulting two white women on a train in 1931. Uh, and in that climate, and in that culture, in that atmosphere, even the mere suggestion of an in inappropriate behavior would usually bring about a lynching. An illegal uh, 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 crowd would gather uh, and would take forcibly the men out of, out of the jail cells and would ex execute judgment on them immediately. And that's... Uh, that came very close to happening with those nine with those nine men. There was a crowd that gathered around the jail cell uh, and tried to break it out. The sheriff called in the National Guard and prevented that. But as they went to trial, all nine of those young men were char were charged uh, were were convicted, and all of one of them were sentenced to death, even though all of the medical records pointed, even, all the, even the doctor had examined the two women and found no, no evidence whatsoever of any kind of assault, and even though one of the women later recanted her story and said really what happened was they were just in that culture embarrassed to have been found with those men in the train, and so in order to protect their own reputations, they had lied about it. Uh, and the point of the story is that those men were unjustly accused, and they uh, went to prison for it. There were several retrials. It was, in one sense, it served the civil rights movement because they brought uh, those, that particular case brought a national awareness to the injustices uh, of Jim Crow laws and the treatment of African Americans in the South. But in reality, for those men, they all went to jail. They were retried a couple times. Uh, they weren't, eventually they were, they, their death sentences were commuted. They were eventually paroled. The last one finally got out of jail in 1952 and then was rearrested on another charge. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't until 2013 that the state of Alabama recognized the travesty of that and, and officially pardoned all of those men. But in their lifetime, they never got over it. They never escaped it. They never. They, they were always marked, uh, and they were always. They never fully recovered from the injustice. Wherever they went in that culture, they were thought about and treated of as guilty, and they had nowhere to turn. Really. What does that have to do with this psalm? This psalm is a psalm of David, and David is facing a similar circumstance. There's a man. Uh, one man among several enemies who is accusing him of injustice. Uh, accusing him of injustice in such a way that is tarnishing and, and ha is going to destroy his public reputation uh, and also p potentially pursue him and cost him his life. The, the header to the psalm, it talks about a man named Cush, a Benjamite who is speaking words against David. We don't know who Cush was. But what we do know is that King Saul, David's main enemy, was a Benjaminite who surrounded himself with Benjaminites. And the main charge that these men made against David was that he had broken faith with his master, that he had covenantally violated their covenant and had turned against him. And these men were wrongly accusing David 
of having broken that faith and broken that covenantal bond, destroying his reputation, destroying his life, potentially even costing him his life. Uh, and David, having nowhere else to really turn, calls out to God. And so this psalm for David was a psalm, it was a prayer. It was a prayer calling upon God to vindicate him, to rescue him from injustice, to rescue him from unfair, uh, from, from, from false accusations, from, from injustice. And so it comes for us, it comes for Israel, it became for Israel and becomes for us a model of a prayer of someone who faces deep injustice, of what to do, where to turn. And possibly maybe the most remarkable thing about the psalm, as remarkable as it is, is not what the act of prayer does to God or even what the act of prayer does to the oppressors. It really, the most remarkable thing about the, the psalm, this prayer, is what it does to the person who prays it. What prayer does to us. And that's a big question. I get a lot of people ask me that question, especially in our you know, tradition where we believe that God has foreordained all things. And people say, well, if God has foreordained all things, and no matter who you are, the Bible clearly says God does all things according to his good will and pleasure. If that's true, why do we even pray at all? Why would you even pray? Why do you even pray at all? And, you know, short answer is God commands us to pray because he is ordained to do things through natural means, including our prayers. So our prayers are a big part of that. But the longer answer, uh, what we're going to talk about today is sometimes the most important thing about praying is what praying does to you. And that's what this psalm teaches us more than, more than anything. That's what I'm really going to focus on. So the first thing, the first thing that this psalm teaches us is that prayer strengthens our relational confidence with God. That prayer strengthens our relational confidence with God. I've told you all before that like growing up, I had a tumultuous relationship with my dad. We fought a lot. My family kind of blew up when I was 16. My sister t cut out and it was me and my dad and we just fought until I left home. We had a tumultuous relationship. We fought. We didn't get along. I rarely saw him, if ever. Uh, and that what that led to was that when I, like, ended up in trouble, like the real kind of trouble where really the only person in the world that's going to even think about helping you is your dad, and I had to call him and ask him to help me, it was a terrifying, embarrassing, anxious uh, unknown situation. I didn't know what I was walking into. Would he even listen to me? Would he even take my phone call? What would he think about me? Uh, it was full of fear and, and dread. What would he say? Would he even help me? Would he not help me? I didn't know. Because we had such a fractured relationship, and since our communication was so, was so sporadic, and the times that I usually came to him were the big moments of trouble, it made those big moments of trouble really difficult and really anxious. <laughs> now, some of you are already, like, kind of smiling and laughing at me already. Now, how does that, what does that say about our relationship with God the Father? What, what happens when we become so distracted in our everyday life, just focusing on how we, what we can do for ourselves, how we can trust in our own power, 
just distracted with the minutiae of life, doing hit-and-run prayers here and there, five minutes in the car, try to listen to a podcast here or there, but really kind of spread out and static and spread out what happens in the big, hard moments of life when we have to go and make the big ask of God. Same thing. It's anxious. We wonder why. What is he going to say? What's God going to think about me? There's a lot of embarrassment. You're like, I... There's that, always that feeling of, like, I did this to myself. I sinned. If I was God, I'd, like, let me sit in it because I got what's coming to me and I deserve it. Anxiousness, fear, embarrassment, going to God after, for the big ask, it's really hard. It can be really hard. <laughs> you know, and let me just... Sidebar, say real before I move on, that, that God does answer those prayers. If that's, if that's the reality, if that and when, let me not say if, but when that's our reality, we can know that God does listen to us. He does answer those prayers. He does answer. The real sinner's prayer isn't the prayer that we pray to accept Jesus in our life. I think the real sinner's prayer is the prayer you pray in the back of the police car. Oh, God, get me out of this one. And I promise I will do this, 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 and this. And we try to like smooth, smooth it out and like, you know, do all the things we do to let God hear us. God does hear us. The point is it doesn't have to be that traumatic. It doesn't have to be that traumatic if you have a strong relationship with God through prayer already. Listen to what, listen to this, uh, what David is saying. Uh, let me look at verse one. Let me just show you something. Our translation, ESV translation says, oh, Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge." And that kind of sounds like the sinner's prayer, doesn't it? He's in the back of the police car. He's running to God. Oh, right now do I take refuge in you. But that's in the Hebrew. It's a past tense. It's a continuous past tense. He's saying, really, a better translation is, oh, God, in you have I taken refuge. He's basing his approach to God on this long history of relational closeness to God through prayer. We also know, we look at David's, all the Psalms, we can see that intensity of closeness of relationship that David has with the Father. Uh, the whole tenor of the Psalm also is really talking about who God is and, and calling his character to mind and calling him to remember who he is and what his promises are. All those things are indicative of what? Of intimacy, of closeness, of relationship. And that only happens through uh, what we used to call in, in the trades seat time. <laughs> you get really good at your trade by seat time, spending a lot of time in the seat doing it. And so by spending a lot of time, it's a lot of seat time with God in prayer and with meditation, we have that deep relationship with God uh, on the everyday basis so that when the big ass comes along, it's not traumatic. It's not a big deal. It's like David, you say, God, I have taken refuge in you. Here's your promises and starts reminding God of all these things. And so prayer, one big thing it does that changes us is it changes our, remote, our, our, our intimate relational the depth of our intimate relational bonds with God so that when we approach him for whatever, there's a connection. 
Like, I have another friend who is, like, has a great relationship with his dad. And they hang out all the time. Uh, uh, his dad's, like, the first one he goes to whenever he's in any kind of trouble because that's just kind of his their relationship. His dad, like, often knows what's going on in his life and is able to help him even before he asks. <laughs> and when it comes time for the big ask, it's not that big a deal because they're so, they're so close, right? What would it be like? How wonderful would that be if that was our relationship with God? What would our prayer life be like? What would our, what would our everyday life be like? Here's a story that, that, that I think tells us. There was a, uh, I heard this story from, I can't remember who it was, famous, nationally known celebrity pastor, African-American pastor. There was a big rally, stadium rally, uh, prayer, prayer rally revival. They were all like getting ready to do this big thing and lots of people had come to the rally and also a giant storm had come to the rally and these storm clouds were heading directly towards the stage. And so all the the professional clergy had all gotten together and they were in a circle holding hands, praying. There was also one older, like old grandmother, African-American woman who was with them and all the professional clergy prayed their prayer. Oh Lord, if it be your will that we continue on with this, we pray that you would do this. But if not, Lord, we pray that we would suffer through the rain and blah, blah, blah. And they went on and on and on and on like that. And then the African-American grandmother steps up and she goes, God, <laughs> What did she say? She goes, God, you're going to have to do something about this. <laughs> He's like, you promised that your word would not go out void. You promised all these people that they were going to hear from you today. And so I'm calling upon you to remember your promises, and you are going to stop this rain right now. And all the professional clergy were like, like look, open one eye, looking at each other, like, oh, my, you know, should we, like, step back from this? And, and um Here's what the guy says. They stop the prayer. Clouds are coming at them. You can see the rain pouring out of the clouds. The storm literally split in half and went around the stadium as they continued with the revival. <laughs> like Moses, right? She like held up her staff. He's like, Lord, you promised. I'm calling you on your promise. How did she get there? She didn't show up that day and just bust that prayer out. She's an African-American grandmother. She's gone through decades of her own injustice. She had kids. She prayed for those kids. Those kids had grandkids. She's praying constantly for the grandkids' safety. She's in deep, long-term reliance upon God and God alone for her safety and the safety of her family. And so when it came to the point where there's some rain coming, Whatever. She was like, God, this is nothing to you. Fix this. Come on. Because she was close. She could talk like that. We can do the same thing. Prayer, sticking in it. I mean, I know it's hard to get going, man, for me too. But in one of the big benefits that prayer gives us is that intimate, deep, familiar father child relationship with God where you can literally ask him anything and you become shaped to ask the right things and you see remarkable things happen because of it. So first thing, prayer strengthens our relational confidence with God. Second thing, prayer changes our perception of the world. 
Second thing, prayer changes our perception of the world. Maybe you, you guys have seen, there was a, uh, a graphic, like a video project that Google Earth did a couple years ago called Cosmic Eye. It's a camera, it starts on a woman, she's laying in the grass, and then it zooms out from a meter to all the way out to encompassing the entire universe, 10 billion light years across and goes through all the various stages. And then it zooms back in and goes inside her eye and goes down to the very smallest subatomic particles, just zooming in and zooming out. Uh, and, you know, showing off that technology of how big and how small we, you know, the world is really and how small we can focus on, how big we can focus on. And our, our minds really work in the same way a lot of times. We can focus on the minutia. We can also zoom back out of our minds and look at the big pictures. Or even a pro there's a proverb in our culture about that, the forest and the trees, right? Uh, and sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's really good to be able to have that ability to focus hard, to get deep work done, to really intensely study and meditate on a small thing brings great learning and great understanding. And so sometimes it can be good, but a lot of times it also can be bad because what do we tend to use that power to do? I tend to use that power of mine to zoom in and focus on the problem, the, the negative. I'm in a room of people who love me, and there's two people who don't like me, and that's all I can think about for a week. <laughs> uh, you do a really good job on something, you mess up the last point of the sermon, you just hate yourself, <laughs> hypothetically speaking. Um, it's just, you know, you have a great, you know, your life is full of blessing and there's one, like, serious problem and it tends to take all of our attention. Sometimes problems are really serious and they take a lot of attention, but we tend to, we can get to where we get myopic, we focus in so hard on the problem that that is all we see, even in a sea of blessing. And that's how David starts this prayer. Look how he starts. In, in verse 1 through 3, he goes, Oh, Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. He zoomed all the way in. All he can see is the fact that his enemies are just overshadowing his whole world, as we would say. And then, this is where David ends the prayer, though, at verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> That's kind of a big leap, right? How did he go from micro, looking through the microscope at the problem, to zooming his lens out, and looking at the tele through the telescope at the bigness of God and giving thanks and praise to God? What happened? How did he get such a high degree of confidence? Well, what happened is just that. He zoomed out. He stopped focusing on that tiny problem. I mean, it was kind of a big problem, right? There's an army trying to kill him. That's a big problem, okay? <laughs> Bigger than any problems I've got right now. But he was so focused on that, he was overwhelmed with anxiety, fear. And he zoomed his lens back out. And he remembered God's righteousness. Uh, he remembered 
God's goodness. He remembered really what this psalm does when we get to verses, uh, verses 12. David thinks about his enemies that seem so powerful and so overwhelming and so about to envelop him. And instead of thinking about his enemies in relationship to himself, he starts thinking about his enemies in relationship to God. He remembers God's righteousness, and he really sees what he sees, to put it uh, succinctly, is the relationship between God's righteousness and the wickedness of his enemies, that those two things are inexorably bound together, that because of God's righteousness, because God is a righteous judge, he must judge evil, And because the wicked are committing evil acts, they are necessarily uh, under that judgment. Uh, And he sees that even though his enemies may seem to be overshadowing him, that his God is overshadowing his enemies. It's it's a rather uh, important and interesting point that the, the Bible points out, that this passage points out here. It kind of blurs the line a little bit between who is ultimately responsible. Is it God ultimately responsible who judges and sends people into judgment? Or is it people who, from their own wicked acts, judge themselves? And it's a conversation that's happening, you know, that happens in theology. Who does God send people to hell? Do people choose hell? Uh, and there are camps that hold hard to either side. Really, this is showing... It's kind of both true that those two things are inexorably linked together. God's righteousness demands that he judge evil. And it shows God, it presents God in these first few verses, 12 and 13, is God literally readying, getting ready the the, the weapons of judgment. And then in verses 14 through 16, the wicked are pictured as literally digging their own graves. That the evil that they produce, the evil that they are doing in the world, uh, even though it hurts other people, even though it is an offense to God, ultimately that wickedness is going to return upon them in a much worse way. And so literally they are not, they, they, they are literally digging their own graves. And what David sees that, he sees his enemies and his problems become much smaller. He sees that God is in control of all things. He knows that he belongs to God, uh, and therefore he's able to be more at peace from that macro lens view. And its side note is at the end, end of the story, uh, we don't get the result in the story. It doesn't ever say whether or not David was acquitted. It doesn't say, I mean, we know from the Bible, but in the psalm itself, it doesn't ever say whether or not David was acquitted because that's not the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm was the trouble brought David close into relationship with God so that he was able able to be joyful and able to be even in that difficult spot with ultimate confidence in God and wait, waiting upon God and trusting in his ultimate deliverance. And that is really the main point. And the last thing, though, 
The last thing is this, that this, all, all, this presents us, one last thing, or it presents us with a silent question. The silent question that this really asks everybody. Uh, when you read it, you have to ask yourself, you have to think about it like this. And there's, um, when we do, we came, a lot of us that, uh, myself, some of the others of us who do biblical counseling in, in, in a church, we come out of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is where we, uh, where we came from. And in that, in that, uh, in that group, there is uh, uh, work that you do called resentment inventories. And in that resentment inventory, you write out everybody that hurt you, why you're mad at everybody, what they did, and how it affected you. And in that, all in that resentments, there's usually, you know, there's mixtures of truth and lies that you tell yourself about how you've harmed these people. And all of that, when you first begin looking at the resentments that you have, you're always looking at the people who hurt you from a position of moral superiority. In other words, you always say to yourself, I, the reason I'm mad at you is because I would never do that. And that gives you the power to be mad and be self-righteous, right? So we do that part, first part, you ask yourself, who are you mad at? What did they do to you? How did it affect you? Why, why are they so awful? And then you turn the page over, and the first question you ask is, now, Think, how have you done the exact same thing to that person, and if not, the same thing to somebody else? And 99% of the time, we call it, it's called the realization, 99% of the time kind of hits you like a ton of bricks, like, oh, oh, man, I've done the same thing to that person. It's wonderful in one sense because it, it just demolishes your moral uh, you know, your moral authority over them puts everybody in a level playing field and you're able to say he is a sinner just like I am or she's a sinner just like I am and it opens the way to repentance. But the question that this psalm asks us, this psalm being a prayer that David is praying against people who have harmed him, this psalm being a picture of God and his righteousness being inexorably bound together with the evil of people so that judgment must occur <laughs> The uncomfortable and silent question that this asks everybody is, who could pray this prayer about me? <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Man, I don't even want to answer that question. Who have I un unjustly treated? Who have I falsely accused? Who have I slandered and murdered in my heart? Who have I had unfair and unjust resentments against? Who have I done this to? Who could pray this prayer about me? And if that's true, then what saves me from the binding? What saves me from the inexorable binding of God's righteousness with the evil acts that I have committed but necessarily being judged? What is to save me from that? What really is the only thing that can possibly... What is it that separates in this psalm the wicked, the oppressors, the evil from the upright in heart, the godly, the righteous. What's the difference if everybody's dirty? You know, there's a lot of answers for that. Some people think, well, if my good outweighs my bad, I'm good, but that doesn't really fly because what if you were, what if you were convicted, what if you were a murderer and you went to trial and you said to the judge, okay, I did it, 
but I've also volunteered 10,000 hours at the homeless shelter, so we should call that a wash. If the judge let that person go, you would say that's not a fair judge. That is an unrighteous judge. Same thing with God. You can't undo your bad with your good. Something else has to happen. What is it? Well, there's another way to look at this psalm. In one sense, all the psalms uh, are speaking about Jesus. All the psalms are in some way the prayers that Jesus prayed. This is the prayer book that he grew up with. And so not only were they the prayers that Jesus prayed growing up, but they were also prophecy about his life and his work and what he would accomplish and what what his role was to do. And so Jesus prayed this psalm all as he was growing up. But I think, as I've been thinking about this all week, I think where Jesus was really praying this psalm and several others was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was... He was betrayed right before he was taken into captivity and tried. He was unjustly accused. He was, uh, he was falsely accused of, of, all, kinds of all kinds of crimes. Uh, and, you know, in the, in the beginning it says, protect me from all my adversaries, and then it switches to the singular person, lest, uh, protect me lest he, singular enemy, Devour my soul like a lion. Satan coming at him. I think as what kind of prayers would cause Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to be sweating blood. He was so emotionally distraught and so nervous and so upset over being falsely accused over an all-powerful enemy who was trampling him, coming to trample him into the dust. It was these kind of prayers that he was praying. Now when we pray a prayer like this, we pray it from a position of relative righteousness, right? When David is saying, judge me according to my righteousness, according to my uprightness, his heart, he's talking about just this particular situation. I didn't do what I was accused of. Judge me based on the righteousness that I didn't actually do this. But when Jesus prays this prayer, he prays it from a position of absolute righteousness. And really, the tenor of the psalm changes when it gets into this prayer for righteousness from talking about really just this individual sin where the prayer begins talking about all the righteous and God's ultimate judgment really calls God to bring ultimate end-time justice and judgment down to vindicate him, which is a much bigger deal than just this one individual sin. It gets so much bigger. What does that mean? I think it means Jesus praying this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying that God would bring justice down upon himself and bring him vindication by bringing him into death and out of death. So when Jesus prays, oh God, judge me according to my righteousness, what is he doing? He's asking God that he be bound with the unrighteousness of our sin that he be bound with that relationship. And he's asking God to bring judgment upon him, bring him into the cross through death, and then because of his own personal righteousness, vindicate him through resurrection power. Taking our sins into the grave, 
burying them there and busting forth into the new reality of the new creation, purifying us from our sin and purifying us from the binding of our unrighteousness and God's righteousness. And so it creates a new binding that God's righteousness, having judged Jesus for our sins, now God's righteousness demand that he rescue us. His righteousness demands that his, and, and his love compels him to save us from our enemies and to bring us into eternal life. That's panned out all the way to the 10 billion light years wide, big picture. So what does prayer do for us? Number one, it helps build its deep relational bonds with God so that we can, we're always with him, we can go with him with everything and anything because that's just how we are. Changes our perspective on the world. It really helps us to realize that our enemies are not overshadowing us, but God is overshadowing all things. And most importantly, it reminds us that we are forgiven by Christ, that his righteousness binds us to himself because he has judged Jesus for our sins. And we never have to worry about being judged again. Amen.